sex and seduction. That's um, what I've got to uh, talk about uh, this morning uh, here. And um, uh, um, uh, um, we are looking at the story of Joseph for four weeks, and this is the second week in that. And it so happens that the second big story about Joseph, after the one about his amazing Technicolor dream coat, is the story about Potiphar's wife. And it so happens that um, this was also Mother's Day. There was nothing we could do about it. So that's how we ended up with Mother's Day and sex and seduction all in one go. And my wife, Cornelia, where is Cornelia? Is she... Is she, is she she, she's gone out. Oh, she has gone out. <laughs> That's a, my wife Cornelia said, I'm not coming. To, she only found out about this last Sunday, Sunday morning, because I think, um, I think it was just, you know, said as part of the service that I was speaking next week about sex and seduction. And she said, I'm not coming. <laughs> so, and she advised all our children not to come, although one of my daughters is sat on the front row down there. <laughs> So there you go. She's gone out to um, do stuff with the kids. <laughs> and and uh, here's the thing. So Paul, who, this is a little uh, uh, um, text message uh, stuff. Paul, who's leading the music, texted me yesterday morning. He said, hey, Steve, any idea what sort of songs you'd like tomorrow? I can think of some great pop songs, but probably not appropriate. <laughs> so I text back and said, that's a great line. The only song, um, I could read it off here, couldn't I? The only song uh, it impacts is the one after I've spoken at the end of the service. A great song would be Be Thou My Vision or any other song which centres on following Christ, uh, Clear Vision, etc. I thought that new song, uh, Paul, uh, where's Paul? He's gone as well. He's gone there. <laughs> I thought that new song we sang that you taught us is fantastic and perhaps we should sing that again at the end. I thought it was really brilliant. And then I text again, say, is that helpful? And Paul said, perfect, thanks, Steve. Leave space to do sexual healing at the start. <laughs> Which we didn't do. <laughs> so uh, there you are. Um, so um, that's what we're going to look at, sex and seduction. Um, so here is, a, I, I, was looking at the web, uh, I was looking at the web to um, uh, just what stuff. You know, actually, that is true. In fact, that is absolutely true. I was sat on our sofa next to Cornelia yes, yesterday morning, and I was trying to find a, a kind of visual image to go with this. It's honestly true. So I typed in Genesis 39, because that was Genesis 39 that Kessler read. And, you know, you, on Google, you can click all or images. So I clicked images for Genesis 39. And it was pretty boring, let me tell you. You know, kind of, I mean, it was, you know, it was 16th century uh, oil paintings of um, Potiphar's wife and Joseph. So then I thought, I'll type Genesis uh, 39, sex and seduction. And um, all the same images came up. So then, you know, you just get, you know, in the Google search thing, you just delete some stuff. So I deleted the Genesis 39 and <laughs> hit sex and seduction. And it's something else altogether, let me tell you. Kind of. And then I felt really bad because, because I work for Oasis and, you know, we run on these schools. We have this really secure IT policy. So everyone can tell what you looked at online. So there you are. 
so um, in the end, I found an apple. There you go. <laughs> Somewhere else. Uh, sex and seduction. But um, in my... Uh, Cornelia missed all this because she was doing her knitting, very fortunately. Um, so I, I, in my search, I, I eventually, you know, searched for the story of Joseph or something. And uh, <coughs> I, this is what it said. Uh, it said, a fascinating... This is one, one entry uh, talking about this story. A fascinating peek behind the curtain on the biblical narrative of the outrageously salacious advances made by Potiphar's wife as she lustfully attempted to seduce the strikingly handsome, faith-filled and God-fearing Joseph, shedding light on the true story of how he overcame this terrible temptation uh, so uh, uh, propitiously. We don't use the word propitiously very often, do we? But I think, to be honest, that's crap. <laughs> I just think it's altogether wrong. It's a really shallow reading of the Bible. But let me tell you, it was, it, it's up there time after time after time. I'll read you another one. These, these just random ones that I came across, there were hundreds of them. So another sermon up there and this bit of spiel to start with it. It, said, it says this. The wife of a powerful man, this, uh, this is talking about Potiphar's wife, the wife of a powerful man, she was used to getting exactly what she wanted. And she wanted Joseph, but he refused. How could you do such a wicked thing and sin against God? He said. Then it adds, way to go, Joe. Not only was Mrs. P morally corrupt, <laughs> She was also persistent, propositioning Joseph day after day. To his credit, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her, as the text says, actually. To her shame, Mrs. P wouldn't take no for an answer. Again, Mrs. Potter demanded, come to bed with me. This time, determined to have her own way with him, she gripped his garment, a long shirt tied at the hips. Angry uh, at his refusal, Mrs. P resolved to spin the situation in her favor. She flipped the encounter and insisted the Hebrew slave had designs on her. When her husband returned, Mrs. Potiphar accused Joseph of the very sin she'd committed and blamed her husband for bringing such a man into her home. Understandably, Potiphar burned with anger, another quote from the text, and put Joseph into prison. Mrs. Potiphar's story ends in silence, dishonor, and deceit. And I was shocked, to tell you the truth, truly shocked, because I find that to be such a vacuous, such a shallow, and such an unhelpful, and such a paternalistic understanding, a male-dominated understanding of this text. The problem is that I think it does what these stories often do, the way they're told. A text taken out of context is a pretext. 
And that is a basic tenet of understanding the Bible, as you know we say often. A text out of context is a pretext, which is why rattling off Bible verses at people without explaining or even understanding yourself how they fall and what they mean and what they meant to the original hearers and in the mind of the writer of these words really does lead us a long way astray. Um, I was telling somebody um, uh, earlier in the week, actually, not, not someone who's part of Oasis, but I was telling somebody that I was going to uh, talk about sex and seduction and that somebody who's quite critical of uh, me and um, therefore of the stance we take around inclusion, um, LGBT inclusion in this case, though we're not about LGBT inclusion, are we? We're about inclusion. We're about welcome. We're about celebration of all people in their diversity. Every man and uh, woman is made in the image of God. But I was talking about how I was going to talk about sex and yeah, seduction. And they said to me, well, what have you got to say about that? In, in a church that accepts LGBT people, what can you possibly say about that? In a church that is welcoming, they went on, of divorced people, what can you say biblically about that? I chatted to them, I hope graciously, but what that revealed to me was a dehumanizing caricature of people who are wonderfully made in God's image. And what it revealed to me at a deeper level, level was the shallowness of the, their grasp of the biblical narrative. We have to, in my view, do far better than that. Um, we are confronted, aren't we, every day now, almost, uh, in the news um, with stories of sexual scandal uh, from uh, Hollywood film producers and actors and uh, performers, now all the way to aid agency senior staff, politicians, business executives, UN peacekeepers, bankers, church leaders as well. It seems that each day we wake up to another story of sexual scandal somewhere else. So the question is, what does this story have to say about the world in which we live? And we can only discover what it's got to say about the world in which we live if we first look at the world into which it was originally written. If we don't do that, we'll always be left in a really shallow place. So I want us to take a deeper look at this text which I think actually, although I'm going to talk about sex and seduction, isn't about sex and seduction at all. The theme of this story is all about fighting everything that dehumanizes individuals. This is a story of dehumanization and its impact on people. And as we understand that, and I hope to explain to you why it's actually about that, and not, it is about what the text says, but it's about understanding the roots, the deeper level, the, it's allowing the, the principles that shape this story and the culture that shapes this story to be understood and dealing with that. And I hope that as I do that briefly, I hope, 
you'll be able to, we'll be able to, I'll be able to see and learn new ways in which all of this uh, must impact our lives. And um, I'm going to flip back to that because I didn't put the, these slides together uh, properly and I'll show you the wrong ones if I'm not, that doesn't make any sense to you. There are three main characters in this story. In fact, there are only three characters in this story uh, that we get to learn about. There are other bit parts, you know, household staff, etc. But there are three main characters. And two of them are incredibly vulnerable. Joseph and Potiphar's wife. They're the two main protagonists. But Potiphar plays an important part in the story himself. And I'd like to briefly mention that at the end. Who is Joseph? Joseph is a trafficked man. He has now been sold twice. He was sold by his brothers to some passers-by, and we learned all about that last week. And now he has been sold to Potiphar. He is a slave. He's a trafficked man. He's humiliated. He's alone. He's abandoned. He's forgotten. He's been betrayed by his family. He's in a foreign, <laughs> foreign land. He has no freedom. He is a trafficked person. That's who Joseph is. Now, he might be well-built and handsome, as the text said, but he's also a slave. He's a no-one. No one knows about him. No one cares about him. He wonders every day what happened. What does his dad think happened? He wonders why his brothers left him in this way. He doesn't have a friend in the whole world. That's who Joseph actually is. He's someone who's been dehumanized. He's someone who hardly can believe that he has a value. We'll talk more about that in a minute. There's a vestige of that that's left in him. But he's someone who is at the bottom and no one cares about. Who is Potiphar's wife? You see, the real mistake, well, just one of the mistakes of that text I read to you, is it began with that, that sermon. I'll read it again. Potiphar's wife, the wife of a powerful man, she was used to getting exactly what she wanted, and she wanted Joseph. I put it to you that that is one of the most vacuous statements that anyone could ever make about Potiphar's wife. She was a wife in Egypt. As a brilliant rabbi, who, um, who did some teaching around this story. Hebrew, understanding what the rabbis themselves have said about this story through the ages. In fact, um, when I uh, listened to, uh, to him do this, he was teaching, <coughs> as many rabbis will. You know, as they teach, it can be quite boring. If, if communication is about substance and entertainment, which any public speech is. You know, you've got to do substance and entertainment. He was more on the substance than the entertainment side. And he sat just with a desk in front of him, as rabbis often will do, and he had lots of books open. And this was the text of the Hebrew Bible, of this story, Genesis 39, and texts that were written by other rabbis through the, sent, uh, through the, the Mishnah and various other Hebrew commentaries and uh, commentaries of rabbis in, uh, in the last few centuries. 
And, uh, but what he said was this. He, uh, as he told his story, I thought, there's a great sentence there. You should have called your talk that, this. He said that Potiphar's wife was a desperate Egyptian housewife. She was a desperate Egyptian housewife. Men, rich men in Egypt at this time, we know from all sorts of artifacts that our archaeologists have found and other documentation, they were slaves. Women had no rights. The man had all the rights, as you know, we still fight that in the 21st century, uh, let alone in this century, long before uh, Christ was born. And a rich man would have various wives. Um, any, polygamy was an accepted way of life in, uh, in Egypt, but it, in actual fact it was only practiced by the rich because to have a household with many wives in was an expensive business. And what an Egyptian would do, much like in centuries later, the Greeks and then the Romans, this is the context this little bit, the same context is into which Paul was writing. So a, a rich uh, Egyptian, a rich Roman too, would have a wife, an official wife, a housewife. The term housewife comes from this very culture. And their job was to be part of the house. And their job was to breed the legitimate children. And then there would be a harem of other women who were for sexual pleasure and entertainment. And so the official wife, the housewife, her job was to make sure the house ran well and to, make sure, to work with the, all the officials in the house. It was a job, and she was appointed to it, to raise the legitimate children to pass on the family line and to look after the house, whilst her husband ran the whole harem. That was Potiphar's wife's duty. So, Joseph was alone and trafficked, a slave, dehumanized. Potiphar's wife was alone and a slave and dehumanized, a thing, a possession. She had no power. Both Joseph and Potiphar's wife were, in actual fact, prisoners of a system. Joseph is a prisoner, and Potiphar's wife is a prisoner as well, lonely and abandoned, and seeking comfort. Seeking comfort. Now, you ought to know this, that we know from what's called Hammurabi's Code and uh, various other documents, that the death penalty, that, that the penalty for a wife uh, committing adultery, not for the man, but the penalty for a wife found committing adultery, that the penalty was death. Um, it was death by drowning, by being drowned. And the penalty for a slave caught in adultery was the same. So the background to this is if Potiphar's wife um, uh, commits adultery and it's found out, she will die. And so will Joseph, the slave. One last thing about Potiphar's wife. It's this, 
perhaps the most dehumanising thing of all. Have you noticed? I don't suppose you have, because it's easy to read a text and never see. She's the only person in the story you never know the name of. She's not even named. She's not that important. Potiphar's wife. She has no identity of her own. She's just a possession to run the house. And she craves intimacy. She craves intimacy. They were both prisoners, both of them. But I think that there's a difference between Joseph and Potiphar's wife. It's simply this, that Joseph, as Andrew Lloyd Webber reminds us, had a dream. He had a dream. The technicolored dream coat. As we heard last week, Joseph was given this dream. He held on, even in his slave state, his traffic state, his dehumanized, lonely state as he sought comfort. He held on to this dream. And the dream was that God was going to use him, that his life actually had dignity and purpose, even though all of the circumstances surrounding him told him he did not matter to anyone. I put it to you that Potiphar's wife had no such dream. It was the end of the road for her. She was sold into this house and that's where she would remain without attention, without comfort, without intimacy, always. A lot of people mistake sex for intimacy. A lot of people mistake sex for intimacy. Do you know what I said to the person that said, <coughs> what do you say to a church that's a totally LGBT celebrating um, about this passage? I said to them, you say what you say to everyone, that we all run the risk of mistaking sex for intimacy. You know, this is, this is not the property of heterosexuals, we all run the risk of mistaking sex for intimacy. We all run the risk of dehumanizing ourselves. We all run the risk of listening to the demonized voice that tells us we're worthless. We all run the risk of ending up in some bar, picking up some people, somebody for casual sex and using them as they use us. A dehumanized act which can only ever leave the participants empty, emptier than they started. For what we crave is intimacy and belonging and being known and being valued and being loved. But when we can't find that, it's so easy to go, we know, don't you? I know I'm talking to people who know this, to end up heading down the road that leads us into a place where we never wanted to go in our best moment and we end up there in our worst moment and we regret that stuff because we know that it's eaten into who we actually are rather than enhanced who we are. So that, I believe is the only difference between Joseph and Potiphar's wife. She's given up. And even though she knows this might be death, in this moment, 
which I don't think was her best moment. In this moment, it doesn't matter for her. Day after day, the story tells us she just craves the attention of this kind person. Who wouldn't in this world in which she's trapped and imprisoned? And so it ends in this story of that day when she grabs hold of him and then he runs away. Why does he run away? You know, before, you know, this other thing, Joseph is this God-fearing great hero who does all that. So look, I'm a man, I know what it's like. Your head is filled with temptations in all sorts of ways and you try to hang on in your worst moments when your head is like that. You try to hang on to direction. And I've learned through my life, I, uh, I attend a group of leaders this, uh, this week in a seminar I did, the w- best thing that ever happened to me in my life, besides getting married for the sake of this, tape right <laughs> she's she's not going to listen to it so okay <laughs> but tell her I said it <laughs> the best thing that happened to me in my life as some of you will know and be bored with is one day at the age of 14 going to a school that where I was taught that I wasn't even worth putting in for an exam wandering up the side of Crystal Palace football ground on the way home from the church youth group that I went to because there was that girl that I fancied. I know you know the story of bored stiff of the story. I'm bored stiff of telling it, to tell you the truth. <laughs> but the trouble is, is what happened? What can I do? I can't change it. Any, but the thing is, the thing is, at that moment, on that Friday night, at the age of 14, having listened to the story in this church about how I was made by God and my life had potential and meaning and purpose, and I weighed up the story of my school that told me I was a nothing and the story of this church youth group that told me my life has potential, and I decided to take this road and not that road. I decided to believe this story and not that story. And as I said to a group of leaders I was asked to talk to this week, it is that transformational moment which came from outside of myself. It's nothing to do with me. How does a 14-year-old kid get that? I have no idea. It did these thoughts, you know, that when I I, I should be a Christian and become a church leader and start school and a hospital, and a, and, a, and a hostel and a hospital. And uh, where does that thought come from? It wasn't in me. You know, I was intellectually contemplating all this stuff. It just plump. And that vision transformed my life. And even in the hardest moments and hardest days of seduction in all sorts of directions, because there's all sorts of seductions in life, aren't there? That I have managed just to cling to because it was there. And I put it to you that Joseph had something to cling to. And that's why he didn't want to get drowned for committing adultery. So tempted into the... Why was he there with her in the bedroom or wherever it was? It's always depicted like that. Why was he there? Because he's fighting and he's wrestling. If he'd stayed well clear of her... He'd have never been in a situation where she could have grabbed his robe by the hip in the first place. He's there. He's wrestling. He's caught. And then as this thing happens or begins to happen, I put it to you, he comes to his senses and his senses are about, but I believe better of myself than this. And I know this will end in death for me. And then God's 
vision for me will never come true and it will end in death for this woman too. And he runs. And perhaps the hero of the whole story isn't Joseph at all. In fact, I'm sure the hero of the story isn't Joseph. I think the hero of the story is Potiphar. Because Potiphar is a captain in the king's guard. He's well connected. And the, and, and the sentence for attempting adultery is death. And Potiphar chooses not to press the death penalty. The last verse says, and Potiphar had Joseph imprisoned. He could have had him killed. So I think that Potiphar, for all his failings, I'm not trying to make him out to be a model of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what people normally do, isn't it, in a vacuous reading of these stories. Oh, this person represents God. I'm just saying that this man chooses to forgive, or at least not to push the charges. And Joseph escapes with his life and probably Potiphar's wife as well. And here's the last thing I want to say about sex and seduction. It's this, that though Joseph didn't end up sleeping with Potiphar's wife, of course, the most famous Hebrew in the whole of the Old Testament kind of did, David. Except Potiphar's wife is now Bathsheba. And David has power. But he's bored because the story of how he has the adulterous affair with Bathsheba and then leads on to actually having Bathsheba's husband murdered in order to try to cover things up and lies and cheats his whole way through it. Um, That story begins by saying it was the time that kings went with their armies to war but David stayed at home. And he's bored and I learned from my own life in my bored moments that's when my mind does stuff to me that I wish it didn't do to me sometimes. And I need to refocus myself on my vision and what God said to me. But David gets it wrong. Joseph doesn't sleep with Potiphar's wife. David does sleep with Bathsheba. And yet David is remembered as the greatest king of all of Israel and he's, he's promoted constantly as somebody that God loved. And I think that's important. See you, Marianne. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Um, I think, as I close, <laughs> I, think, I think this. David, re- David blew it. And he let go of the vision of who he was supposed to be. And he did end up not just sleeping with Bathsheba, he used and he abused her, another woman without power. Another woman with no power over herself. But God loves David. As he loved Joseph. As I believe he loved Potiphar's wife. And Potiphar, for every man and woman is made in God's image. And David wrote this song, these lyrics to a song, a psalm. We call it Psalm 51. 
But after Nathan, who was a prophet, had confronted David with his lying and cheating and stealing and adultery and murder and all the rest of it, it took a long time. <coughs> but Nathan confronted him. And instead of saying, I didn't do anything wrong, I'm the king, I can do anything I like. <coughs> these are the words to the song that David wrote. We listened to a song that Matt wrote earlier. Here are the words to the song that David wrote, just a few of them. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my mistakes and my transgressions. Wash away all of my, all of my sin. Cleanse me from my iniquity. For I know my transgressions, and my sins are always before you. So you're right in your verdict, and you're justified to judge. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I know I'll be whiter than snow. Create in me a new heart, a pure heart, a different heart, O oh God. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice. If you did, I'd bring it. And you don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit. I'm broken by what I've done and how I've behaved and how I've used this woman, how I've defiled her. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. I know you, God, will not despise this. Let's pray together. We thank you, Father, for this extraordinary story. An extraordinary story of two people trapped by forces that dehumanized them. Caught in a tangled web that didn't allow them to be who they really were. Two people imprisoned in the same house for different reasons. And we look at this story, and in it we see our own stories. We know the times when we feel abandoned, lost, when we feel that we don't matter, that no one notices us, that we're just there as wallpaper. Help us to cling to the vision of your forgiveness and your mercy and our empowering to be agents of forgiveness. Lord, we long to live our lives in a way where out of the world of compassion that we have been shown and generosity and grace that we know in ourselves, generosity and grace and faithfulness and commitment bubbles out of who we are. We know that sometimes our behaviors come from other sources, but renewing us that well of grace and forgiveness that out of our lives will always flow the waters of generosity, the waters of inclusion, the waters of respect, the waters of faithfulness, 
that refuse to use any other human being as a possession or a thing. This is our prayer. Amen.